The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. Hello and welcome back to Marty's story. In part one, my friend Marty Tankliff told us about his parents getting murdered when he was only 17. He instantly became a person of interest for law enforcement. Traumatized, exhausted, and under duress from a long interrogation, Marty was pressured into making a false confession while separated from his family. We also heard about the unwanted money laundering operation run through a bagel store partially owned by his father. When Marty's father decided to cut ties with those business associates, it triggered a massive disagreement with entrenched criminal contacts who were believed to be the real killers. Marty would eventually be wrongfully convicted for their crime and sent to prison for at least 50 years. We now catch up with Marty behind bars, taking the advice of his cop friend as he begins fighting for his freedom. And as we'll soon hear, that early work was going to prove critical. I'm Michael Samanchik, and you're listening to part two of Marty's story on the California Innocence Project podcast, here on Legal Talk Network. Spent most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free? Keep to yourself as much as possible. And that stuck with me for a long time. And it wasn't until my next state correctional facility that I met somebody who was a former cop who had his own problems. And he said, listen, Marty, he goes, the easiest thing the system can do is convict an innocent person. The hardest thing for them to do is admit a mistake was made and exonerate somebody. He said, spend your time in the law library and fight to get out. And I'll never forget, it's kind of one of those defining moments where I said, okay, like I have to understand the system better than the system understood itself. And I started spending as much time in the law library as I could, understanding the law, understanding how this could happen, kind of reviewing everything. So... You know, in New York, there are several level of appeals, and it was my first appeal, which everybody thought was a great appeal. 1990 was when I was convicted. 1993 was the first appeal. Had one of the best appellate lawyers in America, Mark Pomeranz, former U.S. attorney, just amazing lawyer. And my uncle Mike, Mike McClure in California, asked Mike, asked uh, Mark Pomeranz, he goes, you know, it's a four-judge panel. What if it goes 2 to? And it was like, ah, this doesn't happen. Criminal cases never happens in the second department. Lo and behold, what do you think happened in my case? It goes 2-2, two, two, two. unbeknownst to anybody. A fifth judge was brought on who had true political connections to the Suffolk County DA's office. And when the decision came out, it was 3-2. What Marty is talking about here is a four-judge review panel. The problem with having an even amount of judges is that you can have a deadlock in decision-making. When that happened here, the panel got another judge to participate. Unfortunately for Marty, that new judge affirmed the conviction. But the good news, two of the five judges believed Marty, and that would be an ember of hope that would keep his appeals going. The two dissenting judges voted to dismiss the indictment and set me free, and three voted to affirm the conviction. So everybody goes, how is that possible if they're all supposed to follow the same law? I go, 
I agree with you. I really do agree with you. But it was that moment everybody said, okay, you know what? This is a this is a light that you, there's two judges who have viewed this. They, they've been, you know, there's exceptional people. So we just had faith that the system would work. But then all of a sudden, you know, we appealed to the New York State Court of Appeals. Denied. And it was at that point that the appeal lawyers had expended over a million dollars on their own working on the appeals that I actually had to find new counsel. And as weird as it sounds is Jerry Sturman was sort of the saving grace because he had employed a girl by the name of Laura Teichman, who I went to high school with, who worked at the bagel store, who went on to law school, who wrote a paper about my case, who ended up interning at a firm in Washington, D.C., Miller, Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin. And she knew I was looking for lawyers, and this was 1994, 95. And she pitched my case to the firm. As a pro bono case. A, I think it was like, they were like $7,500. Wow. And Immense. Yeah. I mean, essentially pro bono. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I've, I've heard the stories now where, you know, Steve Braga and Barry Pollock and the lawyers were like, went to their committee like, listen, great case, easy facts, like great law, like tops, two years will be working on the case. That wasn't the case. I want to highlight this part and give credit where credit is due. These lawyers who took Marty's case knew they were in for an expensive endeavor. Without their help, there is no way that Marty would be free today. He was very lucky to have a person like Laura looking out for him. And like most big projects that people take on, the actual amount of work and expense far exceeded what was planned. So a big thank you to all of those lawyers involved who helped free Marty, despite the long, winding path out. They went to the federal district court. We went up to the circuit court of appeals. It gets remanded back down to the district court. The district court sends it back down to the state court. Now, at the state court, the judge's duty really was to assess the credibility of the prosecutor. There's just one problem. The judge's daughter worked in the DA's office in the same unit that was fighting to keep me in prison. Judge never disclosed it. Prosecutor's office never disclosed it. Remember what I said about Marty's case and things getting worse? This is definitely worse. The fact that a judge and their daughter's prosecutor's office are on the same case should have been disclosed under the rules of professional conduct. In this situation, both the judge and the prosecutor's office had a duty to bring this up. Neither one of them did, and that would have a huge impact on Marty's appeal for freedom. But when we finally got back down to the state court, you know, my lawyers wanted to question some people. Judge said no. A few months later, when we actually found out about the relationship between the judge and the DA's office, we raised a stink about it nothing. After the Second Circuit's opinion saying that the state courts got it wrong, we went back to the appellate division, went back to the Court of Appeals. Everybody said no. It was at this point the lawyer said, okay, what's never been done? And what was never done was a real investigation. And they said, okay, Marty, you know, we, we've got to be kind of forward thinking, outside the box thinking and say, let's take a fresh look at it from an investigative standpoint. Up to this point, Marty has been stonewalled by multiple levels of the court system. And it must have been devastating. But the good news is his talented lawyers believe him and are sticking by his side. And now they're going to change tactics. And despite all the previous dark clouds, the legal tide is getting ready to ebb in Marty's favor. I remember reaching out to a lot of investigators. And some of them wanted a fortune of money because they knew the complexity of the case. And I settled on one investigator and he said, listen, if you're innocent, hire me. If you're not, don't waste my time. I go, where do I sign? And it really just snowballed in a very favorable way going forward with his investigation 
I remember one of the first things he arranged was for me to be polygraphed because, you know, New York State is one of those rare states where polygraph exams are admissible post-conviction as a piece of evidence. And it also helps. You know, if you have the right examiner under the right conditions, it can help. But what we did was is that I was examined on 9-11. Um, wow. it's, it's a day that myself and the polygraph exam, we still talk about it to this day is that we'll never forget for, for a multitude of reasons. But, you know, for him is that he, I think he didn't know if I was innocent or guilty when he came to see me. He lost his brother-in-law that day. He lost a family member that day, but it was a day that he walked away saying, this kid's innocent as can be like innocent as all hell. But I remember I was sitting at my prison cell. We were at TVs in our cells, and I remember seeing the towers get hit. I go into you know the attorney visit room. He and I were in that room for three hours. You come out, and everybody's watching TV, and we're like, what happened? And we learned that day. So... After my polygraph, we also had the witness, Carlin Kovacs, polygraphed. In 1993, uh, there's a woman by the name of Carlin Kovacs. Carlin Kovacs was at a party where Joseph Creedon was. Joseph Creedon confessed to her in 1993 that Marty was innocent. Joseph Creedon is believed to be one of the murderers who killed Marty's parents. Carlin Kovacs is his ex-girlfriend who came forward to testify about Creedon's involvement in the killing. She came into that knowledge during an Easter dinner when Joseph Creedon bragged about the murder after smoking a joint. But as we will soon hear, Carlene was not the only person who would come forward. Joseph Garasio, son of Joseph Creedon, would also testify to his father's involvement. During that same testimony, Garasio also implicated Peter Kent as one of the murderers and Glenn Harris as the getaway driver. Ironically, Joseph Garasio was only 17 years old when he gave his testimony the same age as Marty, when he was originally arrested. In 1993, we actually went to the DA's office. With that information. With that information. They did nothing with it. In 1993 and 94, we had learned that McCready was interviewed by a reporter, and he disclosed to the reporter, at the time of my trial, he knew that Jerry Sturman had hired Hells Angels bikers to commit violent acts. Brady violation, you know, potentially exculpatory information. But the investigator, what he did was he said, okay, let me go back to like kind of day one and let's start investigating, you know, who benefits, Stewartman. Let's start looking at Todd Stewartman and his criminal associates. Let's use that network. Yeah. Todd's son, who was the drug dealer, dealt cocaine and all sorts of things. And they identified one of the associates, Glenn Harris. The investigator went up to Glenn Harris. I think Glenn was in prison then. And Glenn said, I've been waiting for this day for like 13 years. And wow. the investigator said, why? He goes, I was the getaway driver that night. And Glenn Harris was also polygraphed based on everything he told us. He passed, I passed, Carlin Kovacs passed. And that kind of just started the post-conviction process because we, we got certain names. And it wasn't until the summer of 2004, 2005, that we had enough of evidence that we actually went to the DA's office and said, listen, please investigate. And it was the summer, and we said, okay, we're going to give you 45 days to start investigating. You know, obviously, I didn't have much interest in it, and it was like on the 45th day, I think it was the first day they went out and started to interview somebody. Wow. We filed our post-conviction papers. The judge ended up ordering evidentiary hearing, which started in 2005. 
and lasted almost 18 months. Wow. Because there was a lot of start and stop. Because Tom Spoda was the district attorney. Tom Spoda had happened to have represented McCready when he was in private practice. Tom Spoda and his firm had also represented Todd Stewerman when he was in private practice. For those not familiar, this is a major ethical concern. The district attorney has two conflicts of interest in this case. He has two former clients potentially involved in a matter that he is investigating. There are multiple rules of professional conduct that would have forbidden him from being involved in this investigation. The proper thing for him to do was recuse himself. So we basically said, like, there's a huge ethical issue here. We want a special prosecutor. We had one of the country's leading ethics experts, Roy Simon, write a declaration basically from every which way. And the judge ruled against us. But Spoda said, well, I'll set up kind of a wall to protect myself and isolate myself. And he ended up bringing in Lenny Leto, who was a former U.S. attorney. And he was in charge of the Insurance Fraud Bureau. But there's just one problem. The investigator that they assigned in the DA's office was the only one in the office who used to work with none other than McCready. Wow. And yep, you guessed it. This is yet another conflict of interest, one that should never have been allowed. Leto and McCready are far too close professionally for one to be investigating the other, especially in a murder case like this. And, you know, the DA's office did not do an investigation to really investigate. It was to attack people's credibility, to manipulate people. I mean, they went into prisons. They found a, a, a white skinhead racist piece of shit that I knew because I worked in the law library. And he said, well, you know, Marty confessed to me. <laughs> I was like, okay, if you know Marty, that's no way in hell. Um, and they actually brought him down to court and he got into a huge altercation. With, so he was never called to testify, but we actually found out, what do you think the DA's office offered? A letter to his parole board for him to get out early. Truth be told, deal making like this goes on all the time. But when something of value is given, like a letter to your parole board to let you out early, it's supposed to be disclosed to the court. That way everyone is on notice that the witness might not be testifying in a sincere way. The list of these ethical violations went on and on, witness after witness. Despite that, Marty's case was slowly starting to strengthen. Unfortunately, the court was not yet won over. And with the proceedings taking so long, the legal bills were really beginning to pile up. But, you know, the hearings started to take so long because, you know, we had this conflict with the prosecutors. And then all of a sudden, we had a witness come forward who gave us some information and said, okay, well, you know, now this witness has identified somebody else, and so now we need an adjournment. You know, this just kept happening time and time again. And eventually, the last witness, which in a common sense world, in a real world, should have been my key to freedom, was Joseph Creedon's son. And he testified that he was recently with his father. His father confessed to him his involvement and also confessed to him about McCready being offered the $100,000. And everybody kind of walked away, said, wait, this is the last witness. Like, come on. Like, you know, now, now it's, you know, you've got former law enforcement confidential informants. You've got a priest, a nun, family members, my trial lawyer. I mean, there was probably 24 to 30 witnesses we brought forward to testify. And I remember it was January of 2007, and I was still held in the Nassau County Jail, 
And my lawyer said, you know, let's ask the judge to keep you down here till the decision. Cause like we, you know, hopefully it's a good decision. And when the judge said no, the lawyer said, he's ruling against us. Lo and behold, on St. Patrick's Day of 2007, he did rule against us. And I went back up to state prison. Despite the setbacks with the court, Marty was still very fortunate. His legal counsel was sticking by him, even though their law firm had just been acquired by a much larger firm. The new owners of the firm wanted to continue working on Marty's case. In fact, by the end of the appeals, several more law firms had joined the fight because when some of Marty's lawyers left for new firms, those new firms also wanted to be part of the case. So it actually had it really expanded because what, what was amazing was is that over the years, Miller, Cassidy, Roke, and Lewin were swallowed up by Baker Botts, which was another big firm. And as most of the lawyers that worked on my case always said, is like, we could leave the firm, but we never left the case. And essentially what had happened was is that by the time it went post-conviction, it was like four major firms from, you know, D.C. area who were working on the case because all the lawyers who had left, no matter what, if they went to their big, another firm, they continued working on the case. And it even grew even bigger than that because the law in New York had changed on depraved indifference and intentional. So the lawyers who did the original appeal, they jumped on board pro bono. They filed post-conviction papers on that issue as well because, like, you know, we in 1990 we were right and, you know, now we know we're right. So we want to come back. We believe Marty's innocent. So I had a number of attorneys and my Long Island attorney was Bruce Barquette who tried the – I say try because really what it was like was like a mini trial, the post-conviction hearings, him and Barry Pollack. And Barry was one of the D.C. lawyers who'd worked on my case for years. So 2007 was about seeking leave to appeal and filing the appeal briefs and the oral arguments, which I was not at. But, you know, everybody who was there said it was probably one of the most incredible oral arguments that had ever taken place in Brooklyn because you had some of the best lawyers, you know, and Brooklyn has like a main courtroom in, and this was a day where there was a main courtroom and there was an overflow courtroom. James Gandolfini came to support me there. Yes, you heard that right. Mr. Tony Soprano himself, James Gandolfini, the famous actor from the HBO series The Sopranos. Marty's case had hit the big time, and popular support continued to gather steam. But it was one of those days where I remember speaking to lawyers afterwards, they all walked away feeling absolutely amazing. But when the judges came out and they saw the briefs and the transcripts and it was bookmarked and flagged and the intensity of the questions. And I just remember it was like week after week waiting for a decision. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was the last week of the decisions couldn't come out essentially. And I remember every day calling. So I, were, I was in Great Middle Corrections today. I worked in the law library. We had a phone in the law library. So my routine really was, was kind of like every morning, like around 10 o'clock I would call, and then the afternoon I would call. And I remember every day, still no decision, no decision, no decision. And finally on Friday, I think it was the 21st, December 21st, 2007, called yeah. home in the morning. Still nothing. The afternoon was different. Got through to somebody, and they said, we won. It was one of those moments like, oh, shit, like, we won. And my answer was, what did we win? (laughs) I'm like, I have three appeals pending. Like, what? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, 
what do you like here I am in the law like, kind of shaking like what do you mean you don't know like what, what do you mean you don't know and it was like finally I said okay okay I gotta figure out like okay who do I call next like who's gonna know and I remember calling Bruce's office and I spoke to the receptionist Lenska and she's like I'm not supposed to tell you, but you won the big one. <laughs> She's like, don't tell Bruce I told you. So she puts her through to Bruce, and he's like, we won the big one. And it was like, one of those moments, was like, what'd you say, Bruce? He's like, pack your shit, you're coming home. Little did I know how quickly the news traveled into the jail because by the time I left working at the law library that afternoon, like the entire jail knew already. Wow. Like, because it had been on the news. My lawyers were calling into the jail to speak to me, kind of, you know, other lawyers. Because I spoke to Bruce, but Steve Braga was traveling. So, like, he wanted to speak to me. I don't know where he was, but he had to call me. But it just traveled everywhere. And I remember, you know, there was just certain moments you vividly remember after that. And I remember, like, walking back to the cell block with one of my friends, Lou, and the officers looked at me like, you know, Mar, do you want to lock in for the weekend? Like, till, I'm like, no, I'm okay. He's like, you know, but something could happen to you. And Lou says, they got to come through me first. I had so much respect there because I never treated anybody bad. You know, all the guys were happy for me because like I was the guy in the law library who was always trying to help people. You know, I remember I used to send letters out to hundreds of other lawyers trying to like get involved to, you know, amicus briefs but i remember like over the weekend kind of just saying is this real and it was i think it was saturday where one of the officers like brought some newspapers to me and there i was on the front cover and that that's kind of when it became real Mm -hmm. like that's when the reality said like okay this is real but then i was like okay how long is this going to take and i didn't know what was happening behind the scenes but you know, one of the lawyers, I think it was Bruce, called Lato up and said, you know, how quickly can we get Marty down? He's like, oh, that could take a few weeks, maybe a few months. And Bruce was like, well, do you care if I call the sheriffs? And Bruce called the Suffolk County Sheriff and said, how quickly can you get, get Marty down? He's like, get me a court order. I'll have him down here in like 24 to 48 hours. Wow. So lo and behold, Bruce got a court order. I was brought down on December 26th. And I'll never forget getting processed out of the, the state facility where, I mean, there's a lot of congratulations. And I remember the, one of the corrections officers that worked there took my ID card. He's like, one day I'm going to sell this on eBay. Like, I didn't really know what eBay was back then. But like, yeah. yeah, I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. And the car ride down seemed like the longest car ride ever because, I mean, it was like, it's like a four and a half hour ride. But it was just, everything felt in slow motion. Because it was like, okay, is this real? But it was like everywhere we went, like I was just observing like the trees, the animals, the smells. I'm like, okay, like I don't, the stench of prison is not here. Like, okay, this is happening. Get down to the Suffolk County Jail. Press is there. Get processed in. Still not believing it's real. Finally, the next morning, I get brought to court. Get brought into the courtroom. And it became real. You know, they, the judge said, you know, the conviction has been reversed. You're being released on a million dollars bail. And I remember hearing, like, being released on a million dollars bail, but all of a sudden, like, the courts put the handcuffs back on me. I'm kind of like, wait a minute, didn't you just say I could be free? Like, I got brought back into the bullpens, and I didn't really know what was going on back then because just the chaos of everything and kind of – but what had happened was is that technically, even if you get on bail, you're supposed to get go back to the county jail, get processed out through the county jail. But Bruce was like, Marty has no property. Like, the judges just released him. 
Like, just figure this out. Yeah. Lo and behold, they figured it out. I got brought out through the court officer's kind of back entrance and we're outside and sunny day and like everything just, your auditory senses, I think it was just complete overload. I just want to get that feeling of freedom, like kind of fresh air. Marty's case still had a little while to go. It was certainly good news that he was going to be released on bail, but the state was not quite finished with him yet. The last mile for innocence cases often involves long waits. The frustrating part is that the waiting is often caused from procedural delays or court capacity. And because there is no fast track or sense of urgency, innocent people have to continue waiting. And that's especially true when the state is trying to avoid civil liability. And I'll never forget, there's a gas station slash like deli right near the courthouse that during my post-conviction hearings, a lot of times the officers would stop back, get me a cup of coffee and a bagel. And I told my family, I said, stop here. I want to get a cup of coffee and a bagel. And they're like, why? Because I said, it'll be the last time I'll ever have a cup of coffee and bagel at this place. But it was far from over at that point. I mean, a few weeks later, we found out and Elves and the attorney general's investigating it, which really took a different turn. But it was thankfully that summer, the attorney general, after their investigation, they announced they moved that they were dismissing the case against me completely. So it was the summer, summer of 2008. 2008 that the case was a finally, you know, officially terminated. And I always tell people, I go, it wasn't terminated the way I would have liked it, but there's a reason why. In New York State, if you are wrongfully convicted and you sue the state, the state is represented by the attorney general's office. So in my situation, there was no way the attorney general's office was going to write a favorable dismissal knowing that they would have to defend that. One of the great things about Marty is his resilience. A lot of people would have been debilitated by anger or despair. Imagine how demoralizing it must have been. Your parents are killed by criminals and you get blamed for it. You desperately need help, but law enforcement prosecutes you and some members of your family abandon you. Despite a total lack of evidence, investigators force you to falsely confess. You're completely innocent, but a jury still finds you guilty and you receive a sentence of at least 50 years to life. A world of ugliness found Marty when he was only 17. He was only a kid at the time, but the defiant power of Marty's spirit found a way to go on. It was raw, unbridled determination that set Marty free. Sure, he had help from the country's best attorneys, but if he had not taken those critical first steps, they would never have come to his aid. It's true, Marty did not get the exoneration he hoped for, but he did make it back to regular life. Even after everything he'd been through, there was still enough fight in him to pick up where his life left off before incarceration. Marty decided to go to college, and the acceptance he received from much younger students surprised him in a good way. So I had to, you know, kind of accept what they wrote. I was like, okay, I'm going to get on with my life. And I did. I started, you know, went back to college. I enrolled at Hofstra University. But I didn't know if, like, under the circumstances, like, would, would Hofstra let me on, on premises? Hofstra embraced me. It's hard for anybody to kind of feel what I was feeling, but I was like, okay, I'm a goldfish in a sea of sharks. I'm not going to survive this. I remember just about every class I took that first semester back. I mean, I had an associate's degree. I mean, I went to college in prison, so like I knew kind of what college, but not on a college campus with kids and right. for the first 
several weeks, maybe even months. I always took the seat closest to the door. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to take my jacket off. Because I always was kind of wondering, like, okay, who knows who I am? Do they care? You know, they're wishing me behind me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it was like one day I remember I'm at lunch with one of the girls I went to was in class with. And she goes, can you get me an interview with Barry Sheck? Out of the blue, I'm like, um, um, wh- why would you think that? She's like, oh, I know who you are, Marty. I don't care. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, I-, I-, I think I can. He is one of my lawyers. Like, I think I can get you an interview. But it was like at that moment, kind of the that ice and that shell broke because I realized, oh, my God, there's a lot of people who know who I am. They believe me, but they just didn't want it like that to affect me having that kind of college experience. I remember kind of one of the best moments was one of the foreign language professors were like, do you want to do a semester abroad? And I'm thinking like, oh, hell yeah, who, who wouldn't want to do it? Like, I'm, yeah. They're like, okay, I've been in prison like 18 years, so I picked Venice, Italy. And I was scheduled to leave January of 2009, but I couldn't get a passport because the passport agency thought I still had a criminal conviction. Mm-hmm. And I remember some of my defense team said, imagine, like a year ago, we were trying to get Marty out of prison, serving 50 years to life, and a year later, we're trying to get him out of the country. Right. Lo and behold, the passport thing worked out. I went to Venice, Italy. Great time. A lot of the college kids I went with had no idea who I was. And the ones that did, didn't say anything. I mean, I, I still remember to this day, there was a guy, Mark. Mark was one of the older ones who was like 25. He said, see, no more. He goes, you know, what happened? Like, did you run out of money in life? Did something happen? Like, you couldn't go to college? I was like, yeah, yeah, Mark, it was something <laughs> like that. There were some obstacles along the way. Oh, my gosh. And it wasn't, this is even funny, because all of a sudden, it was like six months later, I appeal on the Oprah Winfrey show, and I get an email. He goes, yeah, now I understand why you went to college later on in life. <laughs> and we've stayed in touch ever since. Right. Sure. But, you know, Going to Venice was just one of those things where I took a college class and I remember like, like I was like one of the college guys because I didn't feel like I was 37. At that moment, I felt like a college kid. Like, That's awesome. It, it was one of those moments where like I got to walk around Venice, Italy and kind of just, you know, learning the food and the culture. And one of the best defining moments for me is I was walking somewhere and I probably walked on somebody's property. I shouldn't have been, but it was like overlooking the water and the ocean and I just kind of screamed, I'm fucking free in Venice. Like, it was one of, I kind of just said, is this real? Like, could this be real? And it obviously was. But it's still, it's like you just, hard to fathom kind of knowing that, you know, like, I was in prison almost 18 years. Like, I could have died there. And here I am in a foreign country, attending a college class, just kind of, I should say, living my best life at that very moment. What I knew what I wanted to do in life was very far from that point. Like, but I think for most exonerees, I don't know, you've spoken to a lot of them. Like, I felt like a failure in life. You know, here I was 37, 38, no career, no job, no savings, no house, no nothing. And I remember people in my life saying, you know, let's have this quick conversation 10 years from now. A lot of exonerees feel the way Marty did when they get released. After decades behind bars, they often feel far behind on life experiences. While others were out building careers, getting married, and buying homes, exonerees find themselves at the same stage of life when they went to prison. And unfortunately, they often face resistance from people who still think they are guilty. But happily, as we'll hear, Marty didn't let that slow him down. And spoiler, it would involve another fight with a conflict of interest. And this time, 
it would be over his admission to practice law in the state of New York. So after Hofstra, I went to law school. Uh, after I passed the bar, seeking admission was a hurdle. The chairman of the Character and Fitness Committee had a direct connection to my original case. His father was a former Suffolk County Police Commissioner. And Mike Fox was disbarred. And he was involved in that. So that chairman referred me to an attorney who knew very little about civil rights or criminal law. During my admissions interview, he said, why are you an exoneree? Why do you call yourself an exoneree? Because you don't have a declaration of innocence. I go, New York State doesn't give one. He goes, but you can't call yourself an exoneree because you've never been exonerated. So that was just, Right then and there, you kind of know, like, the tone is growing. And he goes, and, you know, you, didn't you do legal work in prison? I go, yeah. He goes, that's like the unauthorized practice of law. And I go, it's actually not. I said, as long as I didn't sign anybody else's papers, there's actually Supreme Court case law that allows it. Lo and behold, after a lot of submissions, he referred me to what would be called a, a full committee or hearing. I ended up having to hire a lawyer. Had to have a, essentially a mini trial to get admitted. Um, that was a long process. I mean, thankfully, I had a, a lot of people fight for me. Now, remember I mentioned the Second Circuit Court of Appeals? Mm -hmm. The judge who wrote the opinion was Guido Calabrese. Guido Calabrese, former dean of Yale Law School. So by the time I was looking to apply for law school, Guido and I had become friends. So most people say, well, how did you become friends with a judge who ruled against you? When I was at Hofstra and one of my lawyers, Roberto Gonzalez, knew I was looking to go to law school, he reached out to Guido, unbeknownst to me, and I, the message I get back is, Guido wants to meet you in person. So I drive from New York to New Haven, Connecticut, and I meet him, and he asks for my forgiveness. And he says, I did what I th was the most I could do at that moment. Wow. And he ended up becoming a friend, he wrote a letter for my admission to law school on Second Circuit letterhead. And anybody who's ever read the letter kind of said, oh, my God. And when I was seeking admission, I actually chose Guido to be one of my character references Wow. for admission. Wow. So there's some other things that Guido did, I can't say. Yeah. But we had a hearing. Uh, a lot of people testified. There's a, there was a lot of very respected people who wrote letters of recommendation for me. And I remember during the hearing, one of the questions was asked to me is like, you know, we, we've heard you say a lot of things and after everything you've been through, why would you want to become a lawyer? And I said, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't somebody who's been through everything I've been through want to become a lawyer, make a difference and help change the system? So eventually on February 5th of 2020, I was sworn as a lawyer. And what makes that day and I think for the second department, so historic, was is that Reynaldo Rivera was the presiding judge that freed me in 2007. On February 4th, 2020, he was on the panel that swore me in. Wow. And some of the court officers who were there in 2007 to hear the oral argument were in the courthouse when I got sworn in. And one of the judges who freed me was very instrumental in organizing how I came into the courtroom, I was the first person into the courtroom, stood right in front of the book where you actually, you're the roll call book. And it really was kind of a amazing day because 
you know, how often does a courthouse or judges free somebody and years later they come back, get sworn in to practice law? You'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who's turned their life around like Marty Tancliffe. From being arrested at the age of 17 and wrongfully incarcerated for nearly two decades, to winning his freedom and becoming a lawyer in one of the most difficult bar states in the country, Marty has proven his mettle. His story inspires us all to never give up and always try our best. The difference lawyers can make in their clients' lives can be profound. Today, Marty is an adjunct professor at both Georgetown University Law Center and Turo College of Law, as well as a special counsel at the law firm of Barkett Epstein. He is also a board member for the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice. Marty has certainly made the most of things through his work, public speaking, and involvement with innocence projects around the country. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed Marty's story. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. California Innocence Project receives thousands of requests for help each year. This once meant hundreds of document boxes occupying our entire office. Finding case details was nearly impossible, and with an ever-increasing client list, we had to make a change, and fast. After researching our options, we found the perfect solution in Clio and have never looked back. In a matter of weeks, we moved all our files securely to Clio. In addition to reclaiming office space, Clio enhanced our ability to swiftly locate and update client files, as well as effectively collaborate as a team. See how Clio can help your team accomplish its mission by going to clio.com. That's C-L-I-O dot com.